Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, you know how you, often we have people either that we know or we've come across in some way on the podcast, and this is a little bit of a different one today. I'm super excited to introduce Josh Eisenberg. And just for our listeners, the way we came across Josh is because he's a documentary filmmaker here in California. And while Josh, you and I don't know each other, I usually crash Sherry's vacation down in San Diego once a year when she's down there. And we would see this dude kind of rollerblading down the strand on one leg. And we were just so curious, like, who is this guy? And then Sherry, I think you actually found Josh's documentary about this guy whose name is Slomo in the New York Times. Is that right? Yeah. And what was really crazy about this is I don't typically start my day by perusing the opinion section of the New York Times. Sometimes I'll just open up the website and see what's in the headlines. But for whatever reason, this day I clicked on the opinion page and there was a freeze frame of a video with slow-mo on one leg. And I literally shouted downstairs to Warren, oh my God, it's the guy we see every day in Pacific (laughs) Beach. And it was just so crazy to me that here was the story of this person that we were so emotionally invested in that we felt like all was not quite right with the world until we saw (laughs) slow-mo go by. And if I remember, like you didn't really know his story, right? So it was really Josh's documentary that really introduced you to who this guy, what this guy was all about. 100%. It was this very weather-beaten looking guy with music (laughs) playing, going very, very slowly on rollerblades, looking like he was in a complete state of bliss. That's all we knew about him. Well, and indeed, that's part of what Josh's film sort of talks about, is exploring who slow-mo is. And that film won over a dozen awards, including Best short documentary at South by. It also premiered Sherry, as you're talking about as a New York times op doc and was shortlisted for an Academy award. His subsequent film, the Netflix original resurface won the jury prize at Tribeca and was nominated for an Emmy. He since co-directed the short documentaries game Hawker from 2022 for Patagonia films and eco hack, which won an audience award at hot docs and is just by chance premiering today, July 19th, 2023. So Josh, we're so happy to welcome you on the podcast and so excited you could take some time when this is a really busy time for you. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I know you're used to being behind the camera, but we're going to, not that you're on film here at all, but we're going to try to turn that around a little bit and and force you out from behind the camera. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about your story. What has brought you along on this journey? What are some of the twists and turns you've experienced along the way? Yeah, sure. And yeah, I am usually behind the camera. So it's (laughs) sort of like unusual to talk about my own story, but it'll be an experiment live here on this podcast. So you know, it's hard to know where to start with one's own story, right? Because our lives aren't, they're not really, there's not really an obvious beginning, middle, end the way that there are when we're putting together documentaries. But I think for the purposes of talking about it right now in the context of slow-mo and other films I've worked on, like, I'll just sort of say how I got started working in film in general. It was totally happenstance. I was in college looking for a major 
film wasn't on the radar. I was at University of Michigan. I think I'd gone in thinking I was going to do marine biology and jazz improvisation. I played jazz bass, and those were the two. I was going to try to double major in those things. And a friend of mine told me that screenwriting was a major at University of Michigan. And something just clicked for me. I was like, that sounds amazing. I love movies. I like writing. I didn't even know this was something you could do. I mean, I knew it was, it was a job. I didn't know it was like a major. And I took some classes in screenwriting and I just, I loved it. And that's what I, I ended up going down that path in college. And it was sort of an unusual thing to study because, you know, we did a little bit of film production, but mostly it was studying playwriting. We read a lot of drama. I took some theater directing courses, took a lot of film history and wrote a couple of screenplays. And the professor who was fantastic was the guy who had written, of all things, the Mighty Ducks franchise. No way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I know. I know. I was like, wow, this, you know, it's Mighty Ducks. I loved it as a kid. And he was just a great professor. So that was my college experience. And most of the screenwriting students, it was very industry pipeline style. So even though we were in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I think the idea was you graduate, you go out to LA and you work in Hollywood and you use some of the connections and momentum you have coming out of this program that, you know, Jim Bernstein, this professor I mentioned had set up. And he wanted students to go right to Hollywood and start working. And and he had done a lot of work to make that happen. You know, I sort of did that. I didn't go immediately to LA, but I I wound up there after a few years. Another student I had sort of developed a co-writing relationship with had been out there working, I think, like in the writer's room for that show, The Orange County. He sort of worked his way up. He wasn't a writer, but he was assisting in the room. And that allowed him to make the ever-coveted connection that you <laughs> wanted to have. And you had a yep. connection to do whatever it was you're going to do. You got to get that connection. So Mitch had gotten us a meeting with an agent. So I, I flew out to LA and I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, by the way, and we can come back to it, but had a meeting. I think I did terribly in that meeting. I think the, the agent said like, what are your favorite movies? Or I just totally blanked. <laughs> Mighty Ducks. <laughs> I, I didn't say Mighty Ducks, but yeah, I'm sure it was so boilerplate. It was probably like the Big Lebowski or I mean, which right, was a good right. movie, something that everybody, every film student would, I just didn't know what to say. And thankfully, Mitch, who was my friend who was working for the OC, he just had it on lock. He just listed off a bunch of filmmakers who the agent was familiar with and was a fan of. So he sort of managed to establish that connection. And suddenly we had an agent and we were in LA. And we were like off and running. And I thought that was going to be, everything was going to be set from there. <laughs> Magically, all the doors would open, the connections would happen. And, and... Yeah, we we're going to write a hit screenplay, we're yep. going to make money, we we're going to have a house in Malibu. And, uh, that how's, gonna... how's that working out, Josh? <laughs> None of that happened. As it turned out, a lot of things conspired to sour me on my time there. We had written a screenplay to sort of get ourselves in the door, but like that second screenplay that the agent was waiting for just did not coalesce. That come up with, like, I think once we were under some pressure to write something, just wasn't happening. We're beating our heads against the wall. We had a bunch of ideas that just weren't taking flight. I didn't feel particularly creatively inspired. I didn't like living in LA. I was working, I was driving, not exactly a pizza delivery truck, but I was picking up like the raw ingredients for a variety of pizza restaurants and delivering to like, the separate restaurants. So I was like driving all over LA, you know, which is like not the best way to live in LA is to, you know, it's already a tough town to drive in. And then I was just like on the roads there. And, you know, in the evenings I was trying to work on these creative projects. They just didn't really have anything behind them. And I wasn't there for very long. I think six months. Ago, I was like, what am I doing? 
what was happening for you emotionally when that was happening? I mean, that sounds really hard. You're, you're telling us the facts, but what was going on inside? I had this deep, deep, deep longing. I had like this creative energy and I also had an ambitious energy. So I, I both had this desire to create something great, whatever that was going to be. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't really know what I had to say. I just wanted to like make something. And two, I wanted to, I don't want to say I wanted to be rich and famous because that's not exactly it, but I wanted to be successful. Those were these kind of deep desires. Because when you're in LA, you're, you're surrounded by that energy. The people who have that, there's a lot of people who want that. And it was really caught up in that. And it was not, not a good place to be. That's not a place from which I think like great things are made. You know, I think I was a little depressed, honestly. I think the combination of wanting those things and then sort of living in a really tiny, cramped apartment in Venice Beach and driving this pizza truck around, it couldn't be further from that reality. And it just, LA was a tough city for me. Yeah. And you weren't, you also weren't getting to express your creativity. So all of it. So I'm curious your comment that you had this combination of a deep, deep longing and feeling very ambitious and wanting to do something great. And you just mentioned you're surrounded by that kind of energy, but I'm curious if that came from any place else. Was that something new for you when you were in LA or was that the way you were already wired? Well, you know, I think it was the way I was wired. I don't think it was something that came out from LA. As I'm getting older, I think about things in a little bit more of like um, almost the way like maybe an anthropologist would sort of look at their own life a little more objectively. I kind of think like as a millennial, I guess I'm right on the cusp. I'm kind of Gen X millennial. For better or for worse, I think you know, I was, grew up in a, a, a nice college town with a sort of ethos that whatever we wanted, we could achieve. And we were all destined for great things. And I think there's there's some good in that and there's some not so good in that. You know, if I look at my cohort of other students I kind of came up with in high school, like I think everybody had, you could call it ambition. You could call it a little bit of delusion of something wonderful was going to happen. We could just find our place in the world. I think we all just had that, you know, it was just there. And, you know, there's a lot of early 20s hubris. I'm going to be the next great filmmaker. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I didn't say these things to anybody. I think some of this was also accompanied with probably like a lot of insecurity. Maybe a little bit of fear that actually I didn't really have anything to say or share with the world whatsoever. And, and it's sort of weird how those things go together. So I think part of it was me. Part of it was just kind of the way I grew up. Yeah. So you're finding yourself in LA, kind of figuring out this is not the place for you. You're not having success as measured in a couple different ways, you know, either the fame and fortune part of success, but even just that creative expression seems like it has sort of stalled out. So what happens for you? You leave LA next or where do we go from there? Yeah. I mean, what happened was I wrote a screenplay with some friends of mine who were living outside of LA. We're living in actually Eastern Tennessee in a town called Bristol. We wrote a sort of indie comedy. And I think because I had no expectation of trying to sell it in Hollywood, right around this time, I don't know when it was, I'd read a book called like how to make a indie movie at used car prices. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That was literally the title. It was very similar to that. And I got excited about the idea of just making a movie. I think that energy to just make something. So I realized, you know what, I need to just figure out how to make a movie. We don't have to sell a movie. We don't have to make a movie for a million dollars or $10 million. It's just, let's just make something. So while I was there, I was sort of already planning my exit strategy. I started a little LLC and was learning how to start a business. I did it in a very ham-fisted way, but I was sort of just getting ready to do something else. And I think the idea was to make an indie film on our own. We made the film for less than it. You couldn't even buy a used car for what we made the film. <laughs> <laughs> Spent a few thousand bucks on it. The film didn't go anywhere. And I don't think it ever was necessarily going to 
go anywhere, but it was a lot of fun to just make something. It was, it was amazing. So liberating, you know, I didn't stay in Tennessee and I didn't sort of continue on the path to try to make another fictional film that really got me going. And I think that just revealed to me just another way of being in the world. Very DIY, making things comes first and kind of what happens, you don't worry about, you just make something. It's so interesting what you're saying, because it's sort of counter to what popular culture would have you believe. Work hard, show up, do the thing, pay your dues. And even, you know, how they were trying, you were sort of a feeder program almost to Hollywood from your your undergraduate studies. And so it's interesting. What I hear you saying is it was actually taking the left turn. It was actually getting off of that track that really sort of inspired and, and struck up something in you. Totally. Yeah. You know, my parents thought I was crazy. You got to be in LA for more than seven months. <laughs> to figure out if you like it. Yeah. If someone told me they wanted to be a screenwriter and they'd been in LA for seven months, I'd be like, yeah, just stay longer. Like that's nothing, you know? But I think I just knew I could be there for 10 years. I wasn't going to really enjoy my time there. It was just great to be somewhere else, far away, zero expectations. Everybody in town, in the small town in Eastern Tennessee was like, oh, those are the guys who are making the movie. Like, they're so <laughs> Got to be a big fish in a small pond. Bristol, Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, at least with the movie stuff. I don't think it was like, you know, nobody was making a movie there. I think you're saying something that's so important, which is, and you've said it a couple of different ways. One was you had zero expectations. When you first started telling this story, it was, we're just going to do it. You know, we have no idea where this is going to go. And I think what you're speaking to is when you let go of that attachment to, I have to have this happen after I do X, you're creativity came back to you is what it sounds like that you were able to be creative again. You were able to enjoy what you were doing. And it just really speaks to how powerful it can be to really let go of I'm doing this so that X will happen. I think that's totally right. No expectations equals total freedom. I think when we finished that film, I still had a, like a now what? So what was what then? What came next? I didn't know what I was going to do next. I didn't really have a plan. Eventually, I wound up in San Francisco. I moved around a lot. I was moving to a lot of different towns. I was moving back home to Ann Arbor, Michigan for a little bit, trying to figure out the next move. You know, I wound up in San Francisco just by virtue of the fact that I knew a lot of people who had wound up out in San Francisco. The magnetism of, you know, a social circle in, a, in this city. And I love San Francisco. I really loved it then. So I moved out to San Francisco. It was 2008. So I had like a remote work job before remote work. I think I was doing some <laughs> writing. Thing. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then 2008 hit the Great Recession. Job went away immediately. And I needed to find a job. And I wound up working at, I didn't even know, it was a brand strategy think tank. But you know, at the time, I had no idea what that was. I answered a Craigslist ad. I got the job at this place. I think they just sort of liked the cut of my jib or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Things. I had no experience in this. It wasn't something I was particularly interested in advertising, but I think I was so, I was just felt relieved to have a job. At that moment in time, everybody was like, if you have a job, just keep it right now because there's not a lot of jobs out there. And it's funny, the other job I applied for was being one of these guys who rides around on bicycles and sprays pesticide into the drains to deal with mosquitoes. And uh, I was gonna, so I was either going to get the job at the ad agency or I was going to get the job as like the mosquito abatement courier. <laughs> Which it would be very fun to figure out, like, what is the common thing that, right, that connects to those two experiences? <laughs> you know, I have no idea. And you know what? I almost wanted that job more at the time. I was like, I'm going to ride on my bike. I can just think my thoughts. But no, I got the job at the ad agency. And 
I was there for a long time. I thought I was gonna be there for six months and quit when something better came along. And uh, I was there for three and a half years, not because I liked advertising, but because there just wasn't, again, recession. There just wasn't a lot out there. And B, I think maybe subconsciously I was learning stuff and I wanted to sort of hang around while I was still acquiring some new skills. And here's where the video indie film thing comes into play. The guy who ran the agency, they made a lot of internal videos. You know, they weren't broadcast ads, but they'd like pitch Coke or Jack Daniels or, or Swedish Fish or some, some sort of brand on an idea. And we'd make a video to pitch it. And I was the only one there who really knew the ins and outs of making, using these editing programs and using the camera technology because I'd worked on these indie films, this indie, particularly this indie film we did in Tennessee. And so they just sort of gave that to me. They're like, yeah, okay, you, you go make that thing. Uh, it was total trial by fire. I learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. Got yelled at a lot <laughs> for screwing stuff up. I was the first time I'd ever had like real deadlines and been sort of like accountable to other people. And it was intense. But I, you know, I learned a, a bit about filmmaking. I learned a bit about connecting with an audience, I think. You know, you're sort of trying to prove a concept, essentially. So make an argument a little bit in film form. During the last year that I was there, this agency, I was kind of planning, yeah, I, I needed to get out. I just, I knew it wasn't going to be like a ad agency lifer necessarily. But that's when slow-mo happened. I was looking for something to work on that was going to scratch a certain kind of itch. And, you know, I found the slow-mo story and I started working on slow-mo while at the agency. I quit the agency, kind of were in the, in the middle of the slow-mo filmmaking process. And then once slow-mo got out there, I sort of had the opportunity to pursue filmmaking in a more serious way and in a different way. So let's just talk about slow-mo for a second, because he's not exactly a, I don't know what his social media presence is, but he just does not strike me as a guy that is seeking a lot of attention. So how was that to talk to him and to get him to engage with you? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Tell us a little bit about that process. Sure. I can tell you how how his story came across my path a little bit, and that'll sort of also tell you who he is in a way. So my dad, he's retired now, but he's a doctor, and he had gone to Bowman Gray University. I think it's in North Carolina. And Slomo had been one of his classmates. But at the time, Slomo was John Kitchen. He wasn't Slomo yet. It was a neurologist named John Kitchen, and they knew each other when they were in their 20s in med school and had fallen out of touch. Flash forward, 2000. 11, my dad was walking down the boardwalk in San Diego. I think he was there for a conference or a vacation. I don't know what it was. And he runs into John Kitchen, this guy who'd been a neurologist, and he's rollerblading on one leg, blasting music. And he seems like a totally different person than the guy my dad remembered. And, he, you know, he started talking to my dad and he's saying, Paul, you know, I've become this other guy, slow-mo. He started telling him about his life now. People on the boardwalk know who I am. I skate out every day on one leg and I found this salvation through doing this. So they had this interchange. My dad was telling me about it. And I was like, this is amazing. Now, who is this person? I think I was sort of interested in the idea of people just changing their lives in a profound way like that. I, I for some reason, it just really piqued my curiosity. I did. I, still does. I went online and I looked up Slomo and he had this kind of like old school website, you know, pre-social media. He had like a blog where he had written out sort of a manifesto about his beliefs about getting into the zone, which is something that's really important to him, this concept of the zone and about religion, his own sort of spin on religion and rollerblading. And a lot of this stuff was just, he'd sort of written it out. And I was, as I was reading it, I was like, I get it. I get what this guy is about. Like, I understand. And I, and I just had this sort of 
feeling that he was one of those people who was being written off. I bet a lot of people think this is crazy. It feels like out there stuff, yet at the same time, I'm like, I, I think I see what he's saying in between the lines here. And I wanted to talk to him and potentially make a documentary. It just sort of, I hadn't even really thought about making a documentary film in general. I guess it occurred to me that this would be a way, something to do with this guy's story. But it was interesting enough to pursue a little bit more and get some more information. Yeah, I got his number from a, a mutual friend who was someone my dad knew who was still in touch with him, lived in San Diego, another doctor. And I called him and we talked for an hour. He just sort of told me about who he was and his life and philosophy. And like, I was like transfixed. I mean, he was telling me stuff. He was like telling me about how life is like, we're like colors. And 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 when light shines through us, it we're like prisms and the light kind of um, spins off into different colors. Somebody might just hear that and be like, this is, this guy's off his rocker. But <laughs> everything he said, just really, I was like, this is totally, totally. Yes, that's right. I get exactly what you're saying. You know, I was like, okay, if I can listen to this guy on the phone for like an hour and a half, I think we can sustain a 15 minute film. So then it was like, how do we make the film? And I didn't know how to do that. So thus began the process of trying to figure out how to make a documentary film and embarking on that journey, which was for a 15 minute film. That was a multi-year process just to get that made. When you say you didn't know how, because you you had developed some of the technical skills, certainly. But what what do you mean when you say you didn't know how to make a documentary film? I knew through my social circle, a more experienced documentary filmmaker named Amanda McKaylee, who ended up as a producer on Slomo. She kind of came on and, and she said, when you first go to meet him, don't bring a camera and don't start filming. I get to know him. Do a visit without a camera. So that kind of stuff. I didn't know, how do you start? You know, how do you approach somebody and, and get them to sort of expose intimate parts of their life and story to you? So yeah, I knew how to use a camera. I knew what a documentary was. You know, I didn't have a workflow. I didn't know how to start. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what we needed to film. I didn't know anything. And so I think I needed a mentor. And I think through Amanda and uh, another editor, Tracy Loth, who I've worked with on a lot of stuff, I got a lot of insight, enough to go on to start working on this film with him. When we were getting ready for the conversation we're having with you now, I think Anne found a podcast you had been on. And when I listened to that podcast, you said this just really beautiful thing that you originally wanted to do fiction feature films, but ultimately discovered that your true love was to be out in the world with actual people undergoing actual transformations, which just to me, that just feels like such a profound discovery to make. And and listening to you tell about making this documentary and how you were just so drawn to what a profound transformation John Kitchens had gone through in his process of becoming slow-mo. And it just makes me really curious when you think about your own life, have there been other major transformations for you or how has this played out in your own life? Not professionally, because you, you're talking about how it plays out professionally, but I'm curious if there's other ways it's played out in your life. Yeah, well, you know, I, a lot of things happen while making slow-mo that have nothing to do with the film itself for me. Sure, making this film and having the film do all well on the festival circuit and so forth was useful to me professionally and helped me along and got me started doing documentary film. But it actually, like, all these things that happened that, you know, I experienced while making that film had these other repercussions on a more personal level. <laughs> And one of them was that the process of making slow-mo, spending the time with John out on the boardwalk and talking to him, 
and filming him and skating with him and being there, it was so life affirming and enjoyable and exciting to be there in the world that it sort of dawned on me that this should be the new standard, at least for me. It's what I wanted my life to feel like, basically. Earlier, when I was interested in screenwriting, I thought, you know, you kind of toil alone in a a room with a typewriter, whatever, a computer. And, you know, it's not necessarily that much fun, but eventually you have a cool screenplay and you can get out there in the world. But I didn't really relish the actual writing experience. And this was a whole new thing because I was like, you know what, no matter what happens with this film, this is such an amazing experience. I get to be here with this wise, interesting person who's just sort of like divulging all this knowledge to me. And, you know, we're in this beautiful place. And this is just such an interesting experience. I could just be here. I just want to make these films and be here. I mean, you know, I wanted the film to be successful. I wanted people to see it, but like that wasn't the most important part anymore. I think that's what got me on the, this whole documentary thing. If this is what documentary filmmaking is like, Sign me up. It reminds me of your earlier comment, like no expectations equals total freedom. And nobody was asking you to make this film. This was just some guy you found interesting. And so it strikes me that it's in concert with that theory that you shared with us earlier. So as a result, I mean, because you didn't have any expectations, because you kind of let go of even caring where it went or or what happened to it. I mean, you know, I read off a list of accolades that you had gotten for that film. And I'm just curious how you approach other films now, knowing that part of the part of what really your genius is being able to let go of the expectations. Are you able to do that still or have things changed since slow-mo? Well, I guess that's the crazy thing. It's like, you know, like the first film, like with slow-mo, I'd never made a documentary. I didn't think of myself as being a documentary filmmaker. And I thought maybe we put the film online and some people would see it and that'd be it. I mean, I really didn't think anything was going to happen with it in a big way. So it was shocking to me that the film did as well as it did. How did it blow up? Because I know you showed it at at South By. Like what happened next after South By that facilitated it blowing up? Well, at South By, I met at one of the screens, I met Jason Spingernkoff, who at the time was helping to create the OpDoc series at New York Times, which has sort of become a very renowned, successful series of short documentaries. I think it's on like 13th or 14th season now. At the time it was new and he was interested in acquiring the film. My producer, Amanda, I think was, you know, I think we maybe were holding out for HBO for a little bit, but. (laughs) Right. Uh, So you settled for the New York Times. (laughs) Well, you know, they were brand new at the time. I mean, obviously they're an August renowned newspaper, but their, their doc series was sort of, they weren't necessarily a destination for documentary filmmakers. Honestly, I was sort of triangulating around, you know, the advice of more experienced filmmakers and producers. I didn't know. I would have sold it for $5 to, you know, whoever came up to me. And so we had a really great festival run. We got in the New York Times for a few months. I think they licensed it for like 30 days exclusively. And then after that, you know, it got a Vimeo staff pick, which sort of got some eyeballs on it that way. And it sort of went viral. You know, I don't know if things go viral in the same way anymore because there's so much content now out there. But at the time it was still, this is 10 years ago. I think there was still like a hunger for stuff, but um, it it went viral. It just kind of went off on its own, went all over the world, you know, in terms of finding an audience that I was hearing from people from Finland and from Australia and from Japan and wherever. And they're saying, I saw this movie and it it just touched a nerve for people. And I didn't know that was going to happen. And it was a very kind of wild ride. You know, what's really interesting to me about that is 
I think we've been going to San Diego for 15, 16 years now and staying in the same hotel that's on the promenade that slow-mo skates on. And so I experience him for a week a year. And it's been a lot of years, but a week a year. And have been so profoundly impacted by him and knowing nothing about him. And so I'm really not surprised that the documentary resonated with people in the way that you're describing. I mean, it's really hard to explain to someone else what it is like to watch him because he doesn't fly by. He sails by and it's very slow and you feel that Zen energy, that zone energy, I guess is what he would call it. But it really doesn't surprise me that people reacted that way. There's something remarkable about him. There is totally. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the lessons I've experienced as documentary filmmakers, you know, in fiction filmmaking, I think there's some people tell you that casting is like 90% of the job. And I think in documentary, it's sort of the same finding the right people to spend time with and put on camera and they'll sort of carry the film. You know, in his case, I think a lot of his story is just about quitting the rat race. You know, for those who haven't seen the film, it's he was a doctor who was unhappy. And, you know, this is very kind of maybe a simplification of his story, but he quit and decided to rollerblade up and down the boardwalk in, in San Diego all day. And I think a lot of people oh, having a job we don't like, being in a situation in life we don't like, trying to find an escape hatch, not knowing how to find that escape hatch, feeling like there's something, some sort of essential part of us that's not expressing itself. I think it's a, just such a universal story. I don't think I, I I really thought about this conscientiously at the time, but I think like not looking back on the film, I think it's just such a universal experience that I think his story really encapsulated it in a way. And I think the fact that like he quit his job in order to rollerblade on one leg, even though like most people, that's not their thing. I think th- there's something freeing in, in, in knowing that our thing can be such a weird, specific, idiosyncratic thing that we might want to do. I was telling someone recently, I was like, you know, I think if he quit his job and went to like Bali and did yoga, I, I think the fact that he quit his job to like do this oddball activity that he sort of invented for himself, I think it sort of gave the film its legs. Not that there's anything wrong with going to Bali and doing yoga. I think that's wonderful. But, it, you know, I think what he did sort of made it story worthy. So I, I think there's something in that escape, that it, escaping the modern world, escaping the rat race that just people connected with. I think I was looking for that a little bit. Like I said, I've been in this ad agency office job for three and a half years and it wasn't really, wasn't that much fun for me. And so like, I, I think I gravitated toward this idea of like, what if I could escape, you know? And I think that was a little bit, of, I, I sort of had rose colored glasses on of youth when making the film. And, you know, I've, I've, I've since realized that even documentary filmmaking and trying to do anything professionally, there's a, there's a little bit of a grind component to it and that's okay. I don't want to skip over too much, but let's fast forward because literally today is the day um, a new doc is dropping for, for people to be able to see called EcoHack. Tell us a little bit about that and your process. And I am still curious about this earlier thought you had around no expectations, total freedom. So are you able to let go of expectations or has that, is that part of what you were just saying about has sort of snuck in a little bit with even something you love being a bit of a grind at times? As far as the expectations things go, knowing what to do after slow-mo was like incredibly hard. I think in my bio, I said the resurface was the the next film, but it wasn't actually, I I worked on a number of other projects that I I don't want to say didn't go anywhere because I don't want to dismiss them. They were valuable experiences, but like they weren't, they they weren't the right project. They didn't take off necessarily. They were hard. 
And I, I think I felt pressure. I was like, okay, here's my opportunity to like, you know, build a career as a, as a documentary filmmaker. I better pick the right film. I better do the right thing. Thusly, I was sort of back in the trappings of expectation world. Now is my chance. I can build a career. I got people, are, <laughs> agents are calling and they want it. And it's true. They, you know, people were reaching out and they're saying, hey, what are you doing next? I felt like, oh, I, I better make the right move. And I better make the right series of moves because here's my chance to be a, a successful documentarian. And I think that was not really what I needed. And it was not helpful creatively. And I think like the last 10 years since Lemo has been a process of like re-letting go and trying to get back to that beginner's mindset all over again. And I've worked on a number of projects. And I think the more stuff I do, the more I'm sort of getting away from feeling like there's some right move I should be making. And I'm getting back to kind of what I love about filmmaking and the documentary experience in the first place. So, but it's, yeah, it's been, it's taken a while. It wasn't like, okay, cool. We're, we're off and running. I think sometimes a little bit of success can actually be, you can kind of get trapped in that. So how did you come to, I mean, EcoHack seems like a very, Sherry and I got to see an early cut of it. It seems like a very different kind of film. So how did you come to do this one? For one, I'm, I've always been interested in animals and wildlife, and I've been especially interested in conservation and environmental issues lately, just because how can you not be? So EcoHack is about a tortoise biologist named Tim Shields, who wants to save the desert tortoise from extinction at the hands of or the wings of predatory ravens out in the desert. And so he sort of takes it upon himself to build all these wild contraptions like lasers and fake exploding tortoise shells to deter the ravens. And I think, you know, there's some similarities to slow-mo that maybe are not super obvious, but, you know, for one most basic level, I think Tim is also one of those super compelling, interesting people who I could listen to talk for hours at a time, unafraid to philosophize, unafraid to sort of make big, heady pronouncements about life in the world. And so I think those things are just like, they're just good character stuff. It's fun to spend time with those people. It's fun to film them and listen to them. So he has that. And I also think he sort of had like a sort of a wild idea that he pursued maybe against, you know, the better judgment of others. In his case, sort of building all these gizmos that you could only really come up with in a dream to try to fight off these ravens. And it worked. It's been working. And so I, I think there is a little bit of that transformation in Tim's story, but it was similar to Slomo, somebody, a mutual acquaintance who knew Tim told me and my co-director, Brett Marty, about Tim and his work. And we were just like, this guy is fascinating. We got to do something here. And that's the genesis of it. But this time we were, you know, we had the experience we needed, I think, to know how to approach the filmmaking process. And so it was a little bit more of a direct line from start to finish than it was with Slomo. It feels like when I'm listening to you talk about environmental issues and these tortoises going extinct, that there's a little bit of the, ah, was that a little bit of the pull to marine biology to begin with? Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and you know what's cool about documentary is it's perfect for somebody who is interested in everything and doesn't know what they want to do. <laughs> because I am interested in lots of things, like marine biology, like wildlife, like technology, a good list goes on. And it's like, I don't have to go spend 15 years in school getting my PhD in some hyper-specific area. I can just go find these people who are doing that themselves and spend time with them and pick their brain. And I think it's, it shares that with journalism and with podcasting, I think, to some degree, and a lot of things in media where you get to kind of like, by proxy, be with these people. So yeah, totally. I love the nature. I love the outdoors. 
And I think being out in the desert with Tim around tortoises was a wonderful experience. Really, I just would pinch, I, I could pinch myself. I'd be out there and be like, wow, I can't. I'm walking around with this guy looking for tortoises in the desert. And this is what I'm doing with my time. You know, as you do on a Tuesday afternoon, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, what could be better, you know? So. so where can people find the film if they're interested in seeing EcoHack? EcoHack is going to be online with The New Yorker on their website and wherever else The New Yorker decides to distribute it on the interwebs, as it were. So it'll be out there. And we've talked a lot about slow-mo. I think that's just public domain now. Is that true? Can people just go see slow-mo? Yeah, slow-mo is just online for free in a million places now. So it's sort of, it's, it's out totally out there, YouTube, Vimeo, wherever you find your... If you just type in slow-mo movie, you'll find it. Fantastic. Well, I, I think I speak on behalf of both Sherry and myself when, when we really, really want to encourage our listeners to go watch both of these films and frankly, anything that Josh Eisenberg makes, because I think, Josh, you just have this wonderful eye for seeing people that are maybe just a little bit off from center, have a, have a specific way of looking at life. And I think all of us have a lot we can learn from your films and these people. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's It's really extraordinary. And on the topic of being able to see so many things through the eyes of all these other people, if you could go back in time with all the knowledge that you have now and the transformation that you've gone through, and you could have a conversation with your younger self, what is one piece of advice that you would give little Josh? I would tell little Josh to... Don't try to game out the future. Don't try to say, okay, if I do this and then this happens and this happens, I'll wind up in X place that I want to be in. Pursue the things that are interesting and enjoyable to you in the moment and everything else will take care of itself. And that's sort of borne out since. And that's how I try to approach ideas for films now. It's like, if I think it's interesting and cool and catches my attention, then that's enough. I don't need to know that it's going to be something that's going to get picked up or that it's going to find this audience or it's going to, you know, land with this network or whatever. It's just not, you know, when I try to think like that, it just, I just spin in circles and I don't wind up doing anything valuable. So I think I just say, look, learn how to listen to your gut and your heart, which is hard to do, but figure out how to do that and just do that. I I feel like it's a little cliched, but this is true for me. And I think it's true for a lot of people who are in the creative field. It's kind of like, this is your job as a creative person now. It's like, there's all these tools that are available and they're sort of, they've been democratized. So like getting a, a camera that can make a beautiful looking image, that's not that hard to do anymore. But figuring out what to do, you know, where to kind of put your creative energy, that's still really hard. And that really just comes down to like knowing how to hear yourself. Well, what I love about the advice that you have just given to little Josh is it perfectly describes the way you are moving through the world now and the way you are living your life now. And that's really, really, really cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's a process. It's an ongoing process. Not a straight line from point A to point B. Well, Josh, I really just really want to thank you for joining us today. Like you took a call from a stranger and I so appreciate you saying yes and joining us today. It's been really just super exciting to hear about your own life and journey and how you've gotten to where you are now. Yeah, thanks so much. It was really fun to get to talk with you both about it. It's just very, very fun to actually meet the person who did the documentary of this other person, Slow-Mo, that has just been this, in an odd way, a part of my life for so many years. So I'm so, so excited that Anne was able to connect with you. 
And on that note, that wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And we're super excited about a book group concept we're calling Pod Squads for the podcast episode. The idea is to give you the opportunity to bring together a few friends and talk about some of the concepts in each of the episodes. And depending on timing, one of us might also be able to join you. So if you're interested in learning more, hop on over to flowingeastandwest.com to join our mailing list. Until then, please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.